You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. The difference between Eastern and Western traditions of Christianity is made visible by many marks, but none more distinctly than the Eastern icon. The regular visual style, following ancient and set canons, pulls against the instinct of Western art toward originality and novelty. The responses they evoke from Eastern Christians push beyond what Western sensibilities are comfortable with. Yet, often icons may now be seen in Western Christian spaces, in churches and in homes. What might the icon mean in a Western Christian setting? Do we need to adopt Eastern doctrines or categories along with the icons? Or might there be ways that Western Christians, Roman Catholics, but also Protestants, can find points of contact in their own theological traditions to make their encounter with icons more spiritually fruitful? I'm David Grubbs, your host for this episode of Christian Humanist Profiles, and today we're talking about icons with Sister Gina Weissel, Dean of School of Theology Programs at St. Meinrad Seminary in St. Meinrad, Indiana, and author of Icons in the Western Church Toward a More Sacramental Encounter, published by Liturgical Press. Welcome to Christian Humanist Profiles, Sister Gina. Well, thank you, Dean. Well, as we get in this conversation about icons, I guess we should talk a little bit uh, a little bit of biography. What led you to be interested in this topic, and how far have you gone in that interest? Well, I got started, I would say, back in 2006. I had entered the monastery of the Benedictine Sisters in Ferdinand, Indiana, in 2003, and it was a couple of years after that, in 2006, a, a friend gave me for Christmas an icon painting workbook. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. I, I did a lot of art in high school, and now I was in the monastery and in religious life. And it's like, oh, let's combine art and spirituality and put it all together. Let's see how this works. And so, you know, it had some of the step-by-step processes you could follow to, to make an icon. And I tried it out and found it meaningful. And, and that kind of opened opened the world for me a bit. And so I learned as much as I could with books and then... 2008, I did my first icon painting workshop with a real master teacher, um, with Sonia Pokrovsky and Mark Cherneski out of the Hexameron Six Days of Creation icon painting workshops. Hmm. And then um, from there, it just kind of took off. I, I was learning as much as I could about icons. Um, meanwhile, I was teaching high school theology for a few years. And then when I went back for my master's at St. John's uh, School of Theology in Collegeville, Minnesota, when it got time to do my master's thesis, I wanted to dig into this a little bit more. And so I was studying icons in the Western Church and, hmm. and really researching that with Columbus Stewart. And, and that was kind of the, the background for the book. Um, and since then, it's, it's been interesting as someone who is both an artist who paints icons, as time allows, and as one who... Uh, speaks about them, it, you're called to explain them to people. You can't just mm-hmm. be an artist. You have to be somebody who can explain the tradition as well. Um, so I've found myself uh, sharing about icons a bit more since then and continuing to try to learn the practice as well. I would say I'm, I'm still very much a beginner in that side of the picture, but um, but enjoying being a student of the, of the icon. Hmm. I guess we should say what is an icon because not all Christian art 
uh, falls under that under that category, what would be our specific definition uh, for the for our listeners who are not familiar with icons? Sure. Well, the Greek word icon technically literally just means image. So hmm. in one sense, you can say an icon is any image. Um, but generally, when we're speaking about icons in the religious sense, we're talking about a re- an image of Jesus or the saints or angels. Um, often, I mean, technically, you could talk about mosaics and wall paintings and murals. Hmm. Um, but also, generally, we're talking about a portable image usually it's on a wooden panel that that Mm. can be carried and it's used for prayer Um, usually we're talking about an image where the background is relatively flat and the figure is is kind of pushed forward into relationship with the viewer often there's a level of use of gold but there doesn't have to be Um, gold gold is optional but it it suggests that world of heaven Um, but then more specifically to be an icon, it's, it's an image that is speaking the language of the church. It's teaching what the church teaches. So we could say it's using a dogmatic language. Um, it's an image that's not just coming out of the creativity of the artist, but it's, it's expressing something that the church at large believes. Hmm. Um, so that, that's one important element. The other piece is, is the worldview that is depicted in the image we say that the icon is a window to heaven and that it's a heavenly worldview, uh, a view of the world when everything has been set right, everything has been made made good and redeemed, um, the, the world where it's transfigured and, and filled with the, the love and the light of God. So, so if that's the case, that affects what goes into the image. Um, hmm. uh, but that, that worldview is part of what makes it an icon. Um, and, and it's an image meant for prayer. Um, so it's not just for decoration, but it's an image that is meant to help people pray. Hmm. I would say that's a pretty basic definition anyway. Okay. How, how long have icons been made in the, in the kind of the way that they are in the tradition now? Because they have a very distinctive look to them that has very little to do with well, contemporary art for several centuries. Mm-hmm. So we're... Maybe I should back up one step. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that one other element of what makes something an icon, um, inverse perspective would be that other, mm-hmm. other piece. Mm-hmm. You talk about traditional Western art. Usually we're, we're talking about one-point or three-point or two-point depth perspective where mm-hmm. if something's farther away, it looks smaller or it looks higher on the horizon. Whereas in the icon... Um, it's the opposite. You know, what is what is bigger is in the distance, and, and you as the viewer are probably the smallest thing there. It's like if you stand in front of a window and you look outside. If you stand at the bottom of the window and you look up, you'll see one perspective. If you stand at the top of the window and look down, you'll see something else. Hmm. If you stand at the side, uh, you'll see another view. And and so inverse perspective is like that with the icon, too. It's, it's almost like if you're looking up at what's at the top of the icon, you're seeing things that that you wouldn't see at your normal view. In, in some ways, I explain it. It's like you can see the top of the head tipped forward, or you can see the top of the shoulder tipped forward, and yet it's not juxtaposed in a cubist kind of fashion. But it's it's got a unity to it. But it hmm. does give it a kind of um, stylization that some people find a little odd. 
Um, and so people say, well, where did, where did this come from? Why did, why did it work out that way? And, and icons do go back pretty far. When you look at early church art, um, we have signs and symbols from when Christianity was illegal. So we have images of the fish and the pelican and, and different kinds of symbolic images. Um, and then you see other images of Christ coming along as, as the Good Shepherd we have mosaics. There's a level of continuity with some of the other early art. Um, in Dura you have this early synagogue and house church, and you see that there are wall paintings in the synagogue of, of the Old Testament stories and then also hmm. in the house church. So the icon is kind of in continuity with, with some of that art that you would see um, on those walls, on the catacombs, um, early images of that sort. If you look at the Fayum uh, Egyptian death masks, they are mm. also these wax encaustic portraits of the person who had died. And in that tradition, they also believed in the resurrection and they, these people were eternally alive and they're idealized. Um, some of those aspects also show up in the icons. Our earliest icons, I would say, are, are in the, your fourth and fifth century. You have some images um, that we might call icons, but they, they are also very similar to other kinds of art at the time. During the years of iconoclasm um, in the 8th and 9th centuries, a lot of icons got destroyed, so actually very few exist from, from before that period. Most of the ones that survived were at the monastery of St. Catherine's at Mount Sinai. Um, but we really don't have as many examples of those early icons as we might like. The that most famous one that looks uh, very much like the Christ Pentrocrator icons. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I I, I, rem, I, I rem, was as I was reading the book, you have an, an image of one of the uh, the mummy portraits from Fayum, and I looked at it and I said, "Those eyes." <laughs> <laughs> they they get your attention. I mean, they're they're speaking right to you. <laughs> yeah, and it's and it's so the the art style is so similar um, to to that uh, to that one that I was that very early one from from St. Catherine's. Uh, yeah, that that was that was really interesting to me. So well, so and I think there are different different places as well. So that would have been Egypt, and mm -hmm. you know, we have other other traditions that evolve around Constantinople. Um, mm -hmm. We have other traditions in, in Syria and some of the other parts of the East. Um, so I don't, I don't know that you would just have one example of what was an early icon like. If you see an Ethiopian icon, it's very different from a, a Constantinopolitan image. Hmm. Very cool. So you have you make icons, um, write icons. I think you said is the proper way to say that how how do you go about writing an icon? How is this different from, I don't know, Bob Ross just deciding, and here a mountain goes? <laughs> <laughs> here comes a mountain. Well, it is, it is quite a process, and I think one of the first things that I discovered was that it takes a lot longer than you think. <laughs> mm. I mean, I think when you when you start a typical art class in high school or college, you know, you, you learn that, okay, you do your outlines first and you fill this in, and, and generally you, you can finish a work of art within a relatively short period of time. I mean, you might put a number of hours into it, but 
But this one, I think this, this takes a lot. <laughs> hmm. um, so the beginning piece is to choose the prototype. Um, we're not creating a new work, generally speaking, unless you're talking about a brand new saint or you know some image hmm. of, of some holy person that didn't exist before. Um, but even in that case, you have a prototype. What did that person look like? Um, so what is the example that you're going to base your work off of? And that's sometimes hard. Like I said, some of these earlier icons were destroyed. Um, time has its ravages. So finding an image that's in good shape, that you can still see where all the lines are, that you can find the right colors, that it hasn't just been darkened with, with soot or wood, uh, wood smoke or hmm. other kinds of things that would damage the image. Um, so you need to find a, a good one that, that w in that sense, we'd say it's readable. You can you can see the lines you need to see. The colors are clear enough to know what they're supposed to be. Um, and you might do some research about who is your saint or who is this you know image of Jesus that I'm working with, and maybe look for different examples, not just one. And you compare and you try to make make sense of okay, what's what's the best way to do this. Um, and then you're preparing the board. So it usually it's on some sort of panel, and so you may need to have the board cut. Um, sometimes we, we do say an iconographer needs to be a carpenter, a painter, a calligrapher, a theologian. There are all these things an iconographer needs to be. Starting with the board, you have to work with your wood. Some icons will have a raised uh, edge. Um, we call it a kofcheg, which means little arc. So it's, it's kind of a frame around the edge, so raised mm -hmm. wooden piece. So you could either carve that out from the panel or you could um, glue with wood glue uh, some additional um, slats around the, the edges that do that. Sometimes the panels, uh, if you're if you're really invested and you're pretty sure that your work is worth lasting many many years, um, you may put in slats into the back that prevent the wood from warping. Hmm. It is natural material, so you know things will bend with time. And if you're talking about a painting, sometimes it can crack if that warping happens. So. So you try to find a wood that's not going to warp too much uh, or to counteract that in whatever way um, you're able. And then the next step, you prepare that board with, um, we use rabbit skin glue or some people use fish hide glue, a natural, natural animal glue. The protein in it um, acts as a binder. So we, we wash it with a, a weak solution of glue and then we put uh, fabric glued glue down with a stronger glue uh, a layer of fabric usually like cheesecloth or something that's got an open weave mm -hmm. let that dry and then we make gesso which is a combination of marble dust chalk dust another kind of, of rabbit skin glue in there a little bit of honey a little bit of oil um, and you get that all mixed up properly and if it cools it, it's kind of like the consistency of tofu and you can eventually spackle it in some traditions, they uh, use it warm and they'll paint it on. So hmm. we use about 12 or 13 different layers of gesso um, spackled onto that, that wood panel. And it takes about half an hour to dry between each layer. So it takes a little while at that level if you're going to be preparing boards. Usually you're preparing a number of them at once. Hmm. After all that, you're finally ready to start your painting. Nice. <laughs> so, um, with the with the original prototype you have, you can get a tracing of the the drawing um, in terms of the main lines, and then using carbon paper or some other process, you can transfer that drawing to the board, and then we go over that with uh, 
India ink with very calligraphic, beautiful, elegant lines is the goal. That drawing will provide the guideline for the whole painting that follows. And then you put in the background first. Um, we start with the least important elements and then move toward the most important. So sometimes the background is gilded with gold leaf. Um, if, if you're going to do that, that's quite a process of, of preparing to lay gold leaf. Um, but you don't have to. Sometimes there are other, other colors in the background. So you start with that. And then if there are other details of things um, in the back, we would do that first. And then your base colors. And then we would add, you start with the darkest colors, and then you move toward the light. I mean, this is kind of the imagery of, of Christianity going on. So hmm. um, you would start with the base colors and then add your next light. You would talk about the first lights, the second lights, and the third lights as you move toward the highlights in the image, which is different from traditional Western art where generally you add shadows, and that's how you have the difference between the light and the dark and the icon mm -hmm. work moving through the light. And so you kind of have to think a little backwards sometimes to say, okay, I need to not touch this part, but add this and add this, but not that. Um, so we do that that level of highlighting for the clothing, um, for the hair, for the face, um, and then additional details if need be. Sometimes we'll have gold highlights, which we call gold assist, um, with involving beer glue, you boil down some beer and it makes a nice little uh, glue and then you let that cool and add gold leaf and then suddenly you have gold lines hmm. um, and then toward the end of the process you would add halos and inscriptions that tell us who this person is and then to preserve the icon we oil it, varnish it um, and have it blessed and, and then go with it and through that whole process um, it should be suffused with prayer Generally, the iconographer is praying the Jesus prayer, or there are a million and one places where things can go completely wrong. So, dear God, please don't let this get screwed up. You know, please don't let me mess this up. And, uh, you know, dear whoever I'm working with, you know, help me out here. This is this is tricky. Um, but there there should be a level of prayer that's happening, and, hmm. and it can be a very contemplative process, too, uh, while going through all those steps. You have to get over this sense of, oh, I have to hurry and get it done. Kind of just have to relax and say it's going to take as long as it takes, and mm -hmm. occasionally screw this up. You got to back up and um, fix that again, and then and then go forward. But that's the basic process. Hmm. Is there a, are there particular rules about the the pigment or the the medium for the paint, things like that? That's a good question. Um, in this day and age, we have a lot of um, options for paint. Um, there are various things that chemistry allows us to do. In the traditional method, we're making paint out of egg yolk and natural pigments. Mm, okay. So to make paint, generally you're, you're separating out your egg and you have the white and the yolk, and it's really the yolk that you want for the painting process. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a protein in it, so that's a binder. You know, If you leave eggs on a plate a little too long and, and then you try to wash it off, you know, <laughs> no, that, that, that sticks pretty well. Mm -hmm. um, and then natural pigments could be soil of different colors, or they could be crushed stone. And generally, um, there are certain colors that we tend to use, and we know that these are stable and they're light fast and they're not going to react. Um, sometimes stuff happens <laughs> even in this day mm -hmm. and age. You know, things uh, when you emulsify the the egg yolk, we we add a little vinegar to it. Um, 
Um, some people argue about vinegar will make, make some of the pigments oxidize, so you should just use water. If you look at all the different books, they all argue about what's the best way to do this. But um, in the, the way that I've learned, the vinegar helps emulsify the fat in the egg yolk, and then you mix that with the pigment. And it's, you can adjust how transparent you want it to be. And so that's uh, a strength for the different kinds of effects that you're trying to get. As compared with acrylics, acrylics you can do that kind of layering also. Um, it's easier to have an opaque look with acrylic as well. Acrylics tend to go faster because you don't mm -hmm. need quite as many layers to get what you want. Um, with painting with the icon, it, it takes a lot of layers because there is a level of transparency that generally happens. Hmm. Um, but it, you know, it depends. If you have a really huge space to cover, you know, it's not the end of the world if you use um, man-made pigments. But, but if you're trying to be within the tradition, uh, the mm -hmm. natural is, is nice. Um, there's a connection with, you know, people have been doing this for over a thousand years before me. That, that's kind of neat. Right. And then you look at some of these examples that have lasted for hundreds of years. You're like, wow, I wonder if mine will last that long. And then down the road, you're glad yours didn't. But <laughs> I'm told that, you know, when you go back and you see your first icon starting to fall apart, you're, you're grateful. <laughs> but there is something very long-term about it. You, know, mm -hmm. you think about tradition. You think about these images that saints have prayed with hmm. um, for years before us. And, and that this is something that... I want whatever I create to be something that people can pray with. I think that's the main goal, that it should be something that can help people draw closer to God. And so there's there's a level of um, seriousness and depth about it, uh, which makes you want to give your best. And so, you know, if it takes fine gold leaf, I'll buy a little gold leaf if I can take this process that takes a little longer, but it's a better quality and I know it's stable, I'll do that. Uh, but there's also this idea of the economy of the icon. And that's the sense that, you know what, you do what you can with what you've got. Mm -hmm. and if you can't afford this, you do that. <laughs> and if, you know, if this isn't possible, you do this. And whatever's possible to make it happen, uh, you use economy, and there you are. Hmm. Well, you've kind of hinted at the, uh, the, the ideas, the theology, the doctrine, uh, the devotion that kind of underlies what the icon means uh, for the Eastern Church, uh, not just in uh, not just for the person who's creating it, but also the icon's relation to the person depicted in it, and uh, later the the viewer, the person looking at it. So, I know that this is an enormous question, but <laughs> I guess as 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 briefly as economically as we can, what spiritually does an icon do? And how ought a devout viewer approach it within the within the tradition of the Eastern Church? Mm -hmm. No, I think it's a it's a very good question. At one level, the icon makes the holy person present. Hmm. You say, okay, what does that mean? What does it mean to say that someone is present? At one at one level, you can say, okay, I can see it. It's making visible this person that maybe intellectually I know is here but I couldn't see. It's the spiritual world. I can't see the spiritual. But the icon makes makes the spiritual visible. It's something that we can see. Um, when you think about, historically speaking, literacy did not 
come to be pretty universal till after the printing press. And for many, many years, religious images, they were the scriptures of the poor. They were mm-hmm. the images that tell the story that we believe is you know, the guideline of our, our faith and our life. And they help teach, they teach the facts um, of, of what our faith is about. And, and that's important because we can say, oh, that was then and this is now, and you know, we all can read now, so we don't need images anymore. But at one level, we can ask, well, who among us isn't poor? We, we all need mm. to be able to see this reality. And if you kind of look at the history, sometimes it's the poor people and sometimes it's the rich people who are really clinging to their images, and, and there are different reasons for that. Um, but in terms of making, making the spiritual visible, um, I think that serves a couple of purposes. It helps us be aware uh, it helps us know that this is what we're dealing with, um, and it helps bring our attention and our focus back. It's very easy in a time of prayer to kind of let your mind be wandering, and the next thing you know, you're thinking about your shopping list or what I need to do tonight or, uh, you know, what's coming up today. And and the image, when you pray with an image in front of you, it says, hey, pay attention, I'm still here, <laughs> you know, that, uh, you know. <laughs> And I right. are having a conversation in the morning. It's like, um, you're not done yet. Don't leave yet. I'm still here. Um, and I find that that's very helpful for me in terms of focusing attention to say that um, I need to meditate on this mystery. I need to meditate on this reality in front of me. And the physicality of it um, holds it present in that sense. Hmm. At At a deeper level, you can also talk about how is it related to the reality of the Eucharist and Christ present um, in Catholic and Orthodox understanding in in the elements of bread and wine? Um, What does it mean for Christ to continue to be present in the world today? And you can talk about how the Holy Spirit works through the body of Christ and all these people are the presence of Christ today. Um, And that's good in that true, but sometimes the images of the saints help us recognize that, Hmm. that the saints aren't just people who have gone before us, and they're not just gone, but they continue to be with us, and they worship with us, and as they are, so we are called to be. Hmm. We are all part of the body of Christ, and so every saint, every holy person is an expression of Christ. And all those different faces uh, are expressions of the face of Christ. I, I love how St. Paul talks about where we're surrounded by this cloud of witnesses, and it's like, okay, these are their faces. That's what the cloud of witnesses is. Hmm. Um, and so it helps hold that bigger reality up for us and say, look, you're part of this too. Um, mm-hmm. This isn't just some nice idea far away and you know a nice theoretical idea but but there's a reality these are real people with whom you can interact in a sense and and the humanity of it all is is humbling and i think when you're confronted with a human face it's very hard to just push it away and say it doesn't matter Mm -hmm. Um, so in a sense that's what the icons are doing they're giving us that human face whether it's of Jesus or saints or even an angel, angels, kind of messenger of God, um, that sense of this other is present and you are in relationship. Hmm. What do you want to look like?
so they, they challenge us in that way, I think. The communion of Saints Illustrated. I'm sorry? A communion of the Saints Illustrated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or the or the Word of God made visible. Mm-hmm. This is a, I guess this is a technical question because I've seen, I mean, you just do a Google image search and you will find all kinds of representations of all kinds of historical Christians in the style of the icon. Um, is, is it technically proper to, to restrain that instinct um, to those persons who have been recognized officially in the Western or Eastern tradition uh, as saints? Or can you just sort of make an icon of grandma? <laughs> this is a very good question. I think it's the, this is a very delicate question because I think mm -hmm. in the U.S. today especially, um, anything goes for a lot of people. Right. When you think about traditional art, you're always challenged to be creative and do something different and and be transgressive and that's that's seen as a good thing in the artistic world um and yet in the icon we've got this sense of we're called to be faithful to tradition and to pass down tradition the way it's been given to us hmm. and because it's an art that belongs to the church there's this innate sense that whatever is represented in an icon should be representing what the church believes. Hmm. And so when you're faced with this question of who's a saint and who's not a saint, has the church declared it or not, is it legit to put them in an icon? Um, if you're talking about working within the tradition of, of a church that has a process for canonizing saints, the most respectful way of proceeding would be to make an icon only of someone whom the church has declared to be a saint, mm. which is basically saying we recognize that this person is in heaven. It doesn't mean they're the only people in heaven, but but as a church, we recognize that. Um, there are some ways that other people can be depicted in images that are not necessarily icons that might appear similar. Um, you look at some of the mosaics in the churches in Ravenna, and you'll have images of the saints, and then you may have the, the image of the donor alongside the saints. Ah, and yeah. sometimes you have like a square halo instead of a round halo. Um, I think the halo is kind of the, the trigger. Um, that's the symbolic language that says this is a saint. Okay. And this is somebody who we recognize as a saint. So if you don't put a halo on them, <laughs> it's not as big of an issue. <laughs> but if you put a halo on them, suddenly it's like, okay, well... Um, does the church agree with that or not? Okay. And and part of it is about consistency and not wanting to lead people astray. If you're suggesting by your image that this is what the church teaches and this is what the church believes um, and this is where the church is at this time, if that's not, in fact, the reality, um, that's not helpful mm. in some ways, at least that's my perspective. Um, but I do recognize there are, are people who do these things and maybe for different reasons mm. um, and and uh, you know what in the book I talk about it a little bit that there is a place for art that makes a critique there is a place for art that says this person or this situation is holy um, there there are ways to use art to make a commentary about what's going on in the world 
but the icon as a as a tradition that belongs to the church it, it's not really meant to be that testing ground in that sense mm. um, the icon is is more about this is received tradition which we're passing on and so when we go outside of what's actually received you're passing on something that the church didn't actually pass on yet um, it creates a disjuncture that that may be con- a conflict for some people hmm. so icons are kind of like catechism catechism mm-hmm. is not the place for improv <laughs> mm-hmm. i think that yes that's a very fair way of putting it okay or or some people talk about it in terms of like it's a translation of the scripture hmm. you want to you want to make that translation as as faithful and accurate as you can well one of the things that uh, I found really interesting in your book is uh, the way that you sort of articulate how the Eastern Church uh, thinks about icons, uh, sort of theorizes them, theologizes them, uh, lays lays kind of a groundwork in in scripture and in, in dogmatics uh, for what an icon is and what it does. But then you pull in. Um, things that the Western Church has said about sacred art, about the rules that determine um, what art belongs in, in sacred spaces or for sacred uses and establishes, you know, categories and, uh, and, and even kind of aesthetic um, concerns for that. So what are those Western Church categories and concerns and how can they complicate bringing Eastern icons into the West? I think there are a couple main categories in terms of of Western art. And when you look at the tradition of Catholicism and how they've dealt with images <laughs> over the years, a lot of times we're responding to this abuse or responding to that abuse. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and sometimes it takes a while to get to co- a coherent statement that says, this is actually what we believe, and this is the ideal, and this is what we're going for. I would say uh, the document Built of Living Stones, uh, which the bishops, U.S. bishops put out in 2000, um, is a really good document of that sort, where they're not fighting any battles anymore, but they're kind of coming to a summary of, of what some of these different purposes and uses of art are. And in terms of the main categories, I would say the first category is liturgical art, and that's art that helps us participate in the liturgy. It helps make visible the things that are going on spiritually, but which we may not otherwise see. Um, so we, when we say, what's actually going on at the Mass? Well, you can talk about the Last Supper. You can talk about the redemption happening in the crucifixion. You can talk about the Word becoming flesh and in the Incarnation. Mm-hmm. You can talk about the celestial wedding feast of the Lamb and heaven at the end of time. So those are the images that are really appropriate in a space where you're going to celebrate liturgy mm. because those are the things that you would see while you're celebrating liturgy that help you understand, wow, all these other layers of, of reality are happening at the same time. Um, that's one category. The next category would be devotional art, and this is art that helps us be aware of and connect with um, Jesus and the saints, it helps cultivate that personal love that prepares our soul so that when we come to liturgy, it's a more fruitful experience of grace. And 
so a lot of times the devotional images are usually of one or two saints at a time, and we can talk about the church having specific places where this is really appropriate. Um, sometimes we have side chapels or or space at little nooks and crannies when you're coming into church where you can kind of just take a little moment out to pray before you gather with, with the other people. Um, so devotional art fits into that area. Um, devotional art can, can go various places, but, but that's one typical way. And then the third kind of art is, is the didactic or the, the historical art, um, which, is, which is meant to teach, to tell us the stories of the faith. And so that might belong outside of church. It could be in, you know, Sunday school rooms, faith formation classrooms, the entryway of the church, you know, some other kinds of, of places where uh, people are, are being told this is a Christian space, this is what we stand for, these are the stories that shape who we are. Um, and so in the Catholic tradition, we have this whole struggle to sort all of this out and especially in the years leading up to Vatican II, um, starting with the liturgical movement in the early 20th century, they're really trying to figure out what what should worship look like, what should that space be. At that time, they're also dealing with this proliferation of kitsch images and, and lots of devotional images all within the sanctuary space, and, and people are saying, oh, wait a minute, that's not exactly appropriate for what we're doing in liturgy. Let's talk about what we're really doing at liturgy. And so you get this move to push away all that art, and in many churches, they completely cleared out all the art, <laughs> or most of it, and, and there was nothing left. And so you look at a lot of Catholic churches, particularly those made in the 1960s and 70s, and <laughs> They're just kind of bare modern art spaces where we, we get the abstraction, but there's nothing realistic going on. And I think that was part of that struggle to figure out, well, wait a minute, you know, we, we know that the devotional art didn't belong there, but we hadn't quite yet figured out, what's the liturgical art? You know, what is it that that is meant to do? And I think we're still in a process of figuring that out in a lot of churches. When we talk about building a new church, everybody talks about the architecture and how it should be laid out and how it should cultivate community and all of these things with art tends to be a, a secondary consideration. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, especially when you're talking about painting on ceilings and you know creating big spaces, that's something you really need to think about pretty early on. Yeah, it's a big commitment. <laughs> mm-hmm. You better mm-hmm. you better be confident that you made the right choice. <laughs> well, and and even if you don't have the finances to make it happen now, to at least have the vision to say. We'd really love to have this eventually when we can afford it. We've mm-hmm. got space, time, and an idea of what we're looking for. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> you have to start with where you are, but at least to have the vision that this is what's possible and this is what we would like. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's important. I think a lot of folks don't even have the vision. <laughs> Well, I, I'm coming. Uh, I'm coming into this conversation from uh, from the Protestant tradition. That's my background, and mm-hmm. um, you know, my my ancestors and my faith lineage were um, uh, almost as likely to put a brick through a stained glass window as they were to make one. So, <laughs> I, I, f- I found this particular section uh, useful. Because uh, in, in my tradition, we tend to, if, if we think about images, it's mainly 
uh, it's mainly in the didactic category. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the notion of images as used in devotion, that seems to, that, that seems, uh, among, among folks in my tradition to develop, uh, almost, uh, organically without a lot of, uh, without a lot of thought, um, a, a particular piece of art, someone might get it, might get personally attached to it. It'd be personally mm -hmm. meaningful for them, meaningful for them, but there's no particular, instruction no particular um way of deciding whether or not uh, whether or not that's appropriate for us to be right. drawing a great amount of comfort from uh, some victorian picture of of beautiful ladies in ball gowns with with wings as an image of heaven <laughs> uh, yeah so I, I i found this um useful i was doing a lot of um a lot of kind of translation and how would this look for me to have this have this conversation um within in my neck of the woods as they say <laughs> well your your subtitle is towards a more sacramental encounter and you alluded to this earlier of uh, the notion of uh, the presence of christ uh, uh, as uh, mediated in the eucharist and western sacramental theology um, and using that uh, as a kind of bridge or a kind of uh, conceptual link between the West and Eastern theology of icons. Could you could you develop that? Well, when you look at some of the agreements, disagreements that emerge in response to iconoclasm, a lot of the arguments that were made were kind of working around this issue a little bit, um, hmm. dealing with Greek categories of um, Platonic and Aristotelian notions of what is real and what is present. Mm -hmm. And so when you think of the Aristotelian view, what is concrete is real. It's right here. And when you think of the Platonic, it's like, okay, what is real is spiritual and it's out there and you can't see it. It's just this perfect idea somewhere. And the icon kind of plays between those, that there is definitely something concrete and real right here and yet there's also this spiritual reality, which is true. And that's really the same dynamic that's going on in the Catholic and Orthodox notion of Eucharist, hmm. um, that it's both the concrete and real, and it's the spiritual, which you can't see. And I think that's very much tied to being human, that we are both bodily and physical and spiritual and have a soul. And so that's all connected um, I think that's part of why the concreteness of the icon challenges us to hmm. say that spirituality isn't just something out there, that our bodies matter, um, that our concrete actions matter, that our physical way of praying matters. Um, it's a very Hebrew kind of notion that you know, the very physical, earthy aspect of humanity uh, can be holy and can be good, and when we are doing doing what God is asking us to do in terms of serving the poor or being hospitable to the needy or, or whatever it might be, that that physical act is a holy act, um, which is, is maybe different than, than some traditions where it's like what is holy is far away, not here. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, uh, and I think the, the icon kind of holds that as a, as a challenge to say, oh, wait a minute, the holy can be right here also. 
which is what goes on sacramentally to say, okay, you got this group of people gathered and, you know, they, they're all wearing their flip-flops and their shorts and looking like they're not really plugged in, but here they are. And, you know, this is the body of Christ gathered to celebrate the Eucharist. And, um, and there's something good and beautiful and holy in that, even if it doesn't look as perfect and ideal as we might want to think it should be. And that's that's the glory of the Catholic Church, for goodness sakes. But, you know, it's like this is the reality we live in, and it might not appear perfect, but God is present here even with us as we are um, in this moment. And and the image does that. It reminds us that, you know, whatever's going on in the world, that there is beauty and it is here because God is here. Um, I think that's a lovely reminder that we really need especially <laughs> everything going on these days, you know, everything can be all torn up in a mess and wondering what in the world's going to happen with all of these things that are so uncertain. And of course, the world's always been an uncertain place with all kinds of problems. And yet we believe that Jesus is present with us no matter what. Um, mm. He is God with us. And so, so the icon gives us that image of heaven to say, okay, heaven's not just far away. It's, it's also here present with us. Um, what, a, what a consolation. Hmm. You, you bring up uh, an issue which I thought was really interesting because uh, it's, it's one of those historical, uh, historical things, especially uh, Augustine deals a lot with this when he's in the kind of the Donatist controversy is in the sacrament, what makes it work? Right. Um, so you, you, you contrast the, is it the dispense, is it the disposition or the prayer, the prayerful attitude, receptive, worshipful attitude of the viewer, sort of the ex opere operantis, or is it a kind of intrinsic power in the icon that makes right. that sacramental encounter the uh, ex ex opere operato. You know, is is it is it the thing that does it, or is it the relation between the viewer and and the icon right. that does it? I mean, there might do, be a do, little do, bit of mystery in there, and that's okay. <laughs> do we? Well, ha- I mean, do we have to theology. decide? Do we have to decide? I don't know that we do, and that's okay. okay. I mean, when you talk about Catholic theology and and what is it that makes a sacrament happen, Mm -hmm. you talk about do you have the right form and the right matter and the right intent? I mean, did you have the right stuff that you're working with, bread and wine? Did you have the right words, uh, the form? Mm -hmm. And then did you have the right intent? Did we intend this to be Eucharist? Did we intend this to be um, converting this into the body of Christ uh, among us in this way? Um, when we translate that kind of language and talk about the icon, we can say, you know, do we have the right stuff here? Do we have the right intent? Um, and you can create an image and intend it to be an icon, and you can do it to the best of your ability to follow the right, <laughs> the right order, the right words, in, in a sense. Um, and my my teacher Sonia Pakrovsky, she once said, you know. Somebody was asking if just a little sketch of an icon could be an icon if it's just you know a piece of paper, and she says it can be whatever you need it to be, which I think is tapping into that sense of the intent. Hmm. If I need that image to help me connect to God, it can do that. Hmm. Um, I think the 
the difficulty might be when we start doing things that maybe we didn't actually intend it to be an icon in the way that we intended <laughs> that some people might intend something to be an icon. Uh, you know, when you start having these other motives for why you're doing this kind of art the way you are, and it's not just about passing on uh, the tradition or the presence of, of God in this way. Um, so that's on the artist side. But then on the viewer side, okay, what do you need it to be? Um, mm. Do you need this to be an image of the presence of Christ to you right now? Okay. <laughs> it can yeah. do that. Um, but I think there's also this sense of, especially in the Orthodox tradition, um, whether you knew that or not, whether you intended that or not, that Christ was present in that image. And I know of some uh, priests of the Orthodox tradition who are, are very protective of iconography, and, and some wouldn't even want it on like the church bulletin because they're afraid that, oh, that image is going to get thrown in the car and, you know, tread underfoot, mm-hmm. that that would be disrespectful to that image of God and Christ is present in that. Um, so I think there's a range of understandings in that, in that uh, range of questions um, from, okay, it's an image, uh, Christ is present, but, you know, it doesn't, nobody notices, or it can be an image and, um, you know, greater or lesser quality, you know, it might be okay to let this one go kind of thing. Um, but I, I think it is it is a space where there's some room for, for mystery, and that's okay. Hmm. Um, but I think there is this sense that there's room for presence here, and maybe we need to respect that God has a way of, of speaking and working in this, in this way within these traditions. question <laughs> no 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 it's it, it, it's helpful because i i i do uh i i'm very i i'm interested uh i'm interested in sacred art in general i'm interested in icons in particular but i know that there are um there are particular theological distinctives of the eastern church that um as a protestant um that's not that's not where i'm at and right does that mean that my a very different worldview <laughs> right and and is my encounter with an icon going to be because of those theological differences is my encounter with the icon going to be fundamentally disrespectful maybe even offensive to the tradition that produced it um should i you know to 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 what extent might i need to 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 step back um mm-hmm. because uh because my interaction is not um, is not animated by the same this the same beliefs that uh, that, that produced the icon uh, because because sure. sure. there there's the you know in our culture there's the the constant uh, the constant concern with uh, cultural appropriation right and can there be a kind of cultural appropriation between Christian traditions. I like I love what you say in the book about saying that, you know, all things that belong to the body of Christ belong to the whole body of Christ. Nonetheless, um I, I feel very sensitive. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel very sensitive to the accusation that I'm doing it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think in one sense Part of my concern is that 
I think a lot of Catholics and, and perhaps Protestants as well, we mean well. I mean, there was no mm-hmm. ill intent, but I think a lot of times we've done things that we didn't realize would be offensive to the Orthodox. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we, when we try to paint icons and we don't know what we're doing and the quality is pitiful and, <laughs> and you know, maybe you're, you know, using the wrong kind of image or whatever the case might be. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the offensive part is if you produce something and everybody's expected to treat that like a holy icon, and when in reality it's really ugly, <laughs> and then you make people think they hate icons because they're so dang ugly. Well, it's like, well, if you actually did it the way we were supposed to do it, it might be a different experience. Right. Um, so there's that. Um, but I think there's also this space of um, the worldview that, that we're coming from. I, I'm, I'm kind of holding... In mind right now, I'm thinking of the Taizé community, which is founded by Swiss Protestants, and they they have Taizé prayer, and you're singing this beautiful music. And I I, don't, I need to look into this. I don't know how they decided to use icons with that prayer and why. Um, maybe you know something about that that I don't. Um, there's that side of the tradition, and then I also know of. Um, I have a family member who's uh, a Reformed tradition Baptist, and um, and he says whenever he sees an image, he finds that so offensive that that he hides it or doesn't want to look because he finds it um, kind of heading toward idolatry and offending mm-hmm. second. And um, and that kind of shocked me. <laughs> I didn't realize there were people who really felt that strongly about it on that side too. Um, but we have this whole range of Christian experience and understanding of what does it mean for God to be in the world today and what does it mean to be a Christian in the world today and yeah. and how do we interact with these signs of that presence among us. So yeah, it is it is a range. Mm. Um, I think my main concern in the book was helping Catholics find, find our way, at least in relationship to the Orthodox particularly. Right. But I am curious in terms of of Protestant experience of images. Certainly you look at uh, the early Bibles that Luther has printed, and, and he does have illustrations. Mm-hmm. Um, the Lutherans tend to be a little more at ease with images. But as you get in more into the Reformed tradition in particular, I mean, it's just like, <laughs> no, the holy is somewhere else, not here. And, and we don't do images, yeah. and we don't do Catholic stuff, and all those evil Catholics, you know, we, because it's Catholic, we push it away. And and there is a dynamic that happens today where when Protestants tend to be converting toward a more sacramental uh, approach to life, sometimes they'll just skip over the Catholics altogether because of the history, <laughs> and they become Orthodox, yeah. which I think is kind of fascinating because that history has so shaped um, the view of, you know, this is how the world is, and Catholics mm-hmm. have always been evil. <laughs> right. But... Um, but when you talk about the ecumenical conversation, say, okay, what do we have in common here? Um, how can I interact with you and, and people of your tradition in a way that's not hurtful, mm-hmm. that's not meant to be um, offensive? And if I find these images help me draw closer to God and they help me pray and they help connect me with the communion of saints, um, is it okay if I do that? Or is that going to upset your, your way of seeking God? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm interested in those kinds of questions. Yeah, and it's one one of the things that I appreciated 
uh, I appreciated about your your book is that even though you're focused, you, you as you say, you are focused mainly on uh, how uh, Western, how Roman Catholics in the West uh, interact with uh, the East and the, the theology of the icon. Um, but you also focused it on what are the categories, what are the, what are the, what kinds of conversation is this going to be? Because it's not just about aesthetics, it's not just about style, if you will, right? Um, and and you located the, you know, if if we're going to talk about what art is, in relation to the church, um, you you laid out what. Um, what areas of theology, and especially um, the discussion of sacrament, because sacrament is one of the areas in which um, Protestants self-consciously um, think differently, and there is variation within Protestantism even on even on that point. But it is one of the areas where we see ourselves as thinking distinctively from um, our Catholic and our Orthodox uh, brothers. But if we can be thinking about sacrament in the ways that we do, maybe maybe we can think about icon uh, icons differently in 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 that regard. I don't know. It, it, so it, this this set me thinking too, and I and I appreciated I appreciated the the direction and thinking that you were giving me. <laughs> Very good. I, I mean, as coming from the tradition that you do, I mean. Can you say anything more about how how you've experienced icons? Oh wow! Usually, I'm not answering the questions. <laughs> oh, that uh, I have tended to focus on the I, I find really interesting the writing and reading language mm-hmm. that's used in regard to icons, and uh, so that when I look at a Christ. Pantocrator icon. I see the colors of the mantle. I see and and the robe, the red and the blue, and um, I've been taught the these colors mean something about deity and humanity. Um, I see his gesture, um, the way that he's holding his hand, the way that he's 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 poised with his fingers, um, that says something about who he is. Uh, but it's also a gesture of blessing, and so a blessing to us that also reveals. Um, who Christ is as the as the 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 Son incarnate, um, uh, the Christ halo with the divine name in Greek Hoan, um, all, all of these different uh, parts of the icon are, you know, I look at it and I feel the Church of the Ages preaching to me of who Christ is, mm. and. That's that's how I, as a Protestant, approach it, um, because I because I don't believe that the icon is telling me this is really what Jesus looks like. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know the 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 artificiality or the 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 archaic style is is self consciously reminding me that it's not attempting to present me that. Historically but, accurate realism. <laughs> right, right. But it is it is telling me, you know, the Church of the Ages, um, the Church of the Creeds and the Confessions, um, this is what it witnesses of Christ. And as a Protestant, I can read that I can I can read that word. I can receive that word. Mm-hmm. Um now is that is that enough? Um 
for one thing, that doesn't lead me to, to, to position my body um, in particular ways um, that would be um, expected in the Eastern tradition. Um, I feel like I'm respectful, but I don't think that I would be perceived as. And, that, and, and that's, that's the area where I'm still kind of working on what, what, a, what a Protestant does um, in, in the church as a whole. <laughs> Sure. With their with their but art. If you can look, I mean, if you can look at that image and say, you're seeing Christ of the ages passed down, and you see that with a level of respect, that's different from saying, how dare you depict Christ in an image? Mm-hmm. You can't possibly include his divinity and his humanity, and therefore this image is blasphemous. Right. I mean, and really, there are there are some people who might end up in that that level of mm-hmm. experience. I mean. I, how we interact with them, especially physically, I think there's going to be a range of comfort and a range of discomfort and a sense of what's appropriate to our tradition. Mm-hmm. And I think that's okay. And part of my studies with this, I, it was kind of exploring that and probing that because for Catholics, the act of veneration is not as common as it used to be. I, I get the impression that in earlier ages, that it would be much more common to um, kiss the relic or kiss, <laughs> you know, b- mm-hmm. b- bow down and touch this image or whatever. Um, and these days I'd say that's, maybe it's the influence of Protestantism upon Catholicism, but mm-hmm. I think that's much less comfortable kind of way of interacting um, for Catholics. On Good Friday, we have the veneration of the cross. I mean, it's the one liturgical moment of the year where we're expected to actually venerate something. And, uh, and you know, you have to kiss the cross, and everybody's like a germaphobe. Like, oh, no, I don't want to kiss that. You know, the person before me just kissed it. And, and then you walk into an Orthodox church, and they're kissing everything. <laughs> and it's like, okay. And, and so it's just a different level of comfort, a different sense of what's appropriate. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I study it, and I, I love icons, but I, I wouldn't say personally that I'm super drawn to, to that level of interaction either. I, I might light a candle before my, my image of Jesus when I pray, and and I'm, I'm definitely using it for prayer. Um, I think it's kind of also like if you have a, a photo of a beloved friend and you know, you're passing out the door and you just kind of little give it to a little tap or you know blow it a kiss or whatever. It's like that sense of you're mm-hmm. my friend and you're present, and you know even if it's just in your picture. Uh, you know, that kind of interaction is, is it... Uh, relatively comfortable but in terms of the full physical bowing and, and full-on kissing and stuff I, I, no I'm not there <laughs> is that bad is that good it's just it's where we happen to be hmm. um, it's where maybe our tradition happens to be mm-hmm. um, at this time um, but I find I find the Orthodox challenge of that level of physical investment I, I think there's something healthy in that to say that it matters to get your whole body involved with your prayer. Mm-hmm. Your whole body's involved in in these sacramental things that um, are signs of God's presence. It, it's an investment in the holiness of matter and the holiness of God uh, here among us. And you know, my my way of interpreting and experiencing it might be different. But I've, I've been thinking about that more recently. It's like, how do I think about when I do kneel at mass or when I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, genuflect or the the kinds of physical interactions that we do have that are are fairly natural uh within the catholic tradition um 
it kind of gives you a pause to think about, okay, why do we do this? And I mm-hmm. think it is that sense that it's both body and soul, soul that we're talking about. It's not just this ethereal soul and I can be however I want to be and therefore I'm praying. Which, you know, there's a level of truth at that. You know, you can just call to mind God's presence and suddenly you're praying. Okay, that's, that's good. Mm-hmm. Um, Brother Lawrence. there's the rest of me too. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> sure. Yeah, the the church that I attend um, during the during the benediction at the end of uh, at the end of, of worship, um, we're invited to um, to hold out our hands as if receiving a blessing. And the first uh, the first several Sundays that we were uh, that we were attending worship there, uh, it felt really really strange. <laughs> <laughs> but now it feels comfortable. Um, but it's also, uh, yeah, I feel that the, the disposition of my body is also putting my, my mind and my heart in a particular space. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah, I've, I, I, I feel the weight of, of what you're saying that, that we need to, we need to think about, um, how far our worship involves our bodies and we might, we might want to loosen up a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> awesome. Well, it's, it's funny when you think about church art and architecture, historically speaking, and, you know, back in the early days, we didn't have pews, you know, you mm, were standing, mm-hmm. you were moving around, you were kneeling, and then at a certain point, we all sat down, <laughs> and we didn't move anymore, and, you know, you think about it in terms of processions, you think about it in mm. terms of... um just the ability, you say, just feel a little free. I mean, you go into an Orthodox church, you know, in the middle of liturgy, you'll you'll find mothers wandering around with their kids, you know, to go visit the icons, or, you know, if it's a really long liturgy, people go out, take a break, come back sometimes. <laughs> and and there's a level of freedom in that. Mm. Um, and yet, when you're present, you know, you're present. And um, I just think that's interesting that, that there are periods in history where we have become a little more receptive but not necessarily as engaged in in full participation um, hmm. I think we need both stances hmm. well I think we are getting about to uh, the end of our time and I've really enjoyed this conversation I thank you for having it with me well thank you well on Christian humanist profiles we give our guests the last word that's what hospitality means for us <laughs> so what thoughts would you like to leave our listeners with on this topic as we as we wrap up our interview? Well, I think when you're talking about icons, you're talking about the beauty and the holiness of the human face and the presence of God in each person that is depicted there. Hmm. And I think it's a really wonderful thing to recall um, in this day and age when we are surrounded by Um, so many images that are trying to just get us to buy things or buy people or sell people, um, to return to that holiness of the human face because God is in it, um, that we're in the image and likeness of God. I think that the icon is a wonderful challenge um, in a world where where it's so tempting to dehumanize other people Hmm. and to use them for, for means that are not holy. And, and so in that sense, I think the icon's a great gift just to remind us that, that God is present in each person around us and that we need to treat them that way. Um, 
And I think that is part of sacramental encounter in that sense as well, that it, it should impact our living and not just our praying or uh, our active sense of awareness of, of where the holy is, but, uh, but our living and our acting as well. So I thank you for this time. Well, and thank you, ma'am. Well, dear listeners, that is all that we have time for. Uh, we've been talking to Sister Gina Weisel about her book, Icons in the Western Church Toward a More Sacramental Encounter. It's available now from Liturgical Press, and there will be a link to it in the show notes when they post on our blog. Our blog is christianhumanist.org. Uh, if you want to leave feedback on this episode, you can leave it in the in the comment section to the show notes. You can also email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com, or you can post them on our Facebook wall. Uh, you can... Uh, like us on Facebook. You can also, uh, we also like good reviews on uh, iTunes as well. Helps more people find us. Christian Humanist Profiles is a program on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. Be listening for the next Christian Humanist Profiles.